You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow together before we begin. Father, we are thankful for your word and for giving it to us. You have made it clear to us what Christ is and what he means for us and what he has done for us. We pray that today as we gather here around your word, that your word may be the central element of all that we think about in our meditation and that you would incline our hearts to you through the truth of Scripture. Give us understanding and help us to think clearly. I pray that you would help me to communicate clearly the things that need to be said about this passage. May you be honored here in our time, in our fellowship, in our study together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is the time of year when we would normally uh, be thinking and and, uh, meditating and singing about the glory of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and what it means for that that great miracle that God became a man and lived among us and left the glories of heaven and came here to dwell among us and then to die among us. And we are giving our thoughts and attention to that at this time of year. And if you are familiar and you've been, if you're familiar with our ministry and you've been here for a while, then you know that my normal course is to continue in whatever book that we are studying through uh, all the way through December and any other time of the year. We don't really get deviate, deviate much for holidays. Um, I always try and work into whatever passage that we are dealing with, whatever holiday is around, like Christmas and Easter. And Easter time, I try and tie the resurrection of Christ into whatever book we're studying. And I don't like deviating out of the, the text for whatever comes by. And, and that disciplined, diligent, persistent effort to do that is what allowed us to go through the Gospel of John in only seven short years. You can imagine how long it would have taken had I gotten off onto a little mini-series every time a, a, a holiday trotted by and got distracted by that. That seven years could have turned into a really long period of time. <laughs> and so we have had a break for the last three weeks from the book of Ecclesiastes as Dave and Cornell and Justin all filled in for me. And we're going to continue that break from Ecclesiastes until after Christmas. It just didn't seem right to sing joy to the world and then for me to get up here and say to you, opening your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. That was too abrasive even for me, and that's saying something. And so after the first of the year, during the darkest, deadest, most depressing, coldest part of the year, we will jump back into Ecclesiastes and we'll have a good time then. You know we'll have a good time then. But in the meantime, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to tell you where it is that we are going we're going to be focusing on what God has provided for us in the Incarnation, specifically looking at Old Testament texts that anticipated what God would provide for us when the Messiah would come. So this is going to be something of a topical study in that we're going to be dealing with a few different elements of the person of Christ, though each Sunday from now and all the way through until and including the Sunday, which is Christmas. Christmas is on a Sunday this year. Uh, for these four weeks, we're going to be looking at one particular specific text of Scripture a different one each week, and drawing from the the vast revelation of the Old and the New Testaments concerning these different elements of the work of Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. God has provided for us in Jesus Christ everything that we need in terms of somebody who can mediate between us and God. We believe, because Scripture reveals, that the divine Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, who existed in eternity past and has always existed with and alongside of and in perfect communion with the Father, left the glories of heaven, the worship of angels, the presence and and worship of the saints, 
And he came to this earth and he was miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin by an act of the Holy Spirit that he was born in this world and lived as a full, uh, in full humanity, as fully God and fully man, that he lived a perfect life, that he never sinned, and that he lived here and that he suffered here and he died and he rose again and ascended back to heaven and now sits at God's right hand. Now that is a, that is the, the scope, the grand, the grand scheme of all that Christ has done for us. That is what we confess. And we confess that this one, Jesus Christ, is both God and man. He is fully God and he is fully man. And those two natures exist without mingling, without confusion, in that one person, alongside of each other, without contradiction. And so in Scripture we see Christ who is fully God, and we saw that on every page of the Gospel of John, in every chapter, the, the deity and the glory of Christ who is the Word made flesh is revealed to us in that, in that Gospel. And it's revealed to us all the way through the New Testament. And we also believe that Christ is fully man, that he, in, he endured and, and suffered all of the, uh, the frailties that are not connected with any kind of a sin nature, but the limitations and the frailties of humanity here in a very real way. That he was tempted, that he, that he did suffer pain, that he knows what it means to, to go without, he knows what it means to experience humanity as we experience it, that this one is both God and man. And these two elements, Christ did all of that, he came to this earth, not not in order to become a social justice warrior and not in order to just show us how much God loves us and not in order to show us how we can be in touch with the divine and, and get to know the spark of deity that is within all of us. The angel revealed to Joseph and Mary what he came to do when the angel said to Joseph concerning Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Listen, for he will save his people from their sins. That is what he came to do. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die in the stead of, in the place of, and as a substitute for all who will believe upon Him to fully and completely bear the wrath of the Father against them for their sin in their place. That is what He came to do. To offer Himself as a ransom for many. And in that work, He has redeemed a group of sinners, an innumerable multitude of sinners from every tribe and tongue and kindred and people in the face of the planet for Himself, for the glory of His own great name, and for the glory of the Father. He has done this. So that is what He came to do. Now, the work that He has done, we would call a mediatorial work. And we're going to talk in the next few weeks about the mediation of Christ. Why did, why did He come? He came to save a group of sinners for Himself, to die in their stead and in their place, and to atone for their sin. He has done this by being their mediator. And theologians refer to the different offices that Christ uh, fulfills in mediating for us. Uh, we sometimes refer to him as the prophet and the priest and the king. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, as far as I can read, and as far as what I, from what I have read, the very first person to sort of systematize that distinction in the mediatorial offices of Christ and the prophet, priest, and kings, the very first one to systematize that was John Calvin, which is almost 500 years ago. Uh, now we're approaching the 500, uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So it was almost 500 years ago that Calvin systematized that. Now, it's not to say that Christians before him didn't understand that Christ was a prophet and that Christ fulfilled the role of a prophet or that Christ fulfilled the role of a king or of a priest. They did understand that. But Calvin was the first one in his Institutes of the Christian Religion to kind of systematize it, to break it down, and to sort of really expand upon the role that Christ uh, fulfills in each of those offices as pro prophet, priest, and king. All three of those are what we refer to as a, a threefold office of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, they were familiar with these different roles, prophet, priest, and king. 
In fact, even a cursory read of the Old Testament shows that the Jews understood full well what the role of a prophet was, what the role of a priest was, and what the role of a king was. Because they were familiar with these offices because it was part of their civic and religious life. And so they were familiar with prophets because they knew of prophets like Moses was a prophet and like uh, uh, David had a prophetic role. Uh, Moses, uh, Isaiah, and Daniel, etc. They understood the role of and function of a prophet. They also understood the role and function of priests because they were familiar with men who stood out as priests like Aaron and Ezra and others who served in that capacity. And of course, they understood what the role of a king was and what the office of a king meant. Well, Christ fulfills all three of these, prophet, priest, and king. And the Old Testament anticipates a Messiah who would fulfill all three of those roles. The Old Testament anticipates a Messiah who would serve as God's prophet. He would be the voice piece of God to his people and speak through the Messiah as the Messiah would fulfill perfectly all that God had willed and say everything that God gave him to say, he would be the perfect prophet. And the Old Testament anticipated the role of a perfect king, a king who would come who was the king of the Jews, who would set up and establish his kingdom and uh, rule over that kingdom, and they anticipated that their Messiah would be that king. And in the Old Testament, the, the role of the Messiah coming as a priest was less clear, though in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews kind of grabs that idea of the, the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood and develops it real very thoroughly to show that Jesus even fulfilled all that the Old Testament anticipated for the Messiah being a priest. So we have a prophet and a priest and a king, and those are the three roles that Christ fulfills underneath that broad umbrella that he is our mediator. He fulfills all three of those roles. So here's what we're going to do today. That wasn't even the introduction. (laughs) This is the introduction. Here's what we're going to do today. Today we're going to be talking about the mediatorial role of Christ, what it means to have a mediator, why we need a mediator, who is that mediator, and what does that mediator mediate. And then for the next three weeks, the next three Sundays, we're going to spend one Sunday each on Christ as our prophet, Christ as our priest, and Christ as our king. And so we'll be finishing up on Christmas Day, which is a Sunday morning, with Christ as our King. And I'll do something else for Christmas Eve. So with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you're not there already. That was our scripture reading for this this morning before the service. We're going to be looking specifically at verse 5, though I need to give you uh, something of a of a background here. for this, Because we're kind of parachuting into the middle of this book. And so let me just quickly, very quickly set up the background of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy was written toward the end of the Apostle Paul's life. Uh, he was, uh, it was written after the book of Acts and all of the events in the book of Acts. Paul, after he was released from house imprisonment at the end of Acts 28, he visited the city of Ephesus where he had planted a church and he found that the church there was almost in utter ruin. They had unqualified men who had become elders and deacons, false teachers who had crept into the church and began to teach perverse things. And Paul saw this and he identified it and he started to correct it. But he left Timothy, a young protege there, to uh, oversee that church and to set some things straight. And he went on to the island of Crete where he found a church on the island of Crete in very similar straits as the church in Ephesus. And so he left his other young protege, Titus, there on the island of Crete. And then he moved on likely to Troas. We can kind of put the pieces together. Likely in Troas where he wrote both 1 Timothy and the book of Titus, which are known as pastoral epistles, because they were written to young pastors who had the responsibility of being over these churches that needed correction and direction. And Paul gave to both Titus and to Timothy these instructions regarding how they were to set certain things in order within the church. That was their, resp- that was their responsibility. So that's how the, why the book of 1 Timothy was written. Timothy was a young man, a, a young pastor at the time. In fact, at the time that 1 Timothy was written, he was probably about my age, so obviously I used the term young there intentionally and, and shamelessly self-serving entirely. 
He was a young pastor about my age, and he uh, needed some instruction from Paul about what to do in that church that, that desperately needed some correction and instruction. So this is a pastoral epistle. Chapter 1 deals with false teachers and how to address false teachers and the dangers of false teachers and their false teaching. Chapter 2 talks about the role of prayer in the ministry of the church and the role of women and men in the ministry of the church. Chapter 3 addresses the qualifications for elders and deacons. Chapter 4 returns to the subject of false teaching and how to deal with that. And then the end of chapter 4 deals with the minister's discipline and what makes for a good pastor and, and how, a, how a man like Timothy was to discipline himself in and for the congregation and the, and the discipleship of others. Chapter 5 deals with what to do with widows and how to deal with elders and even elders who sin and how to remunerate elders. And then chapter 6 is instructions on contentment and, and godliness and being content with what you have and greed. And what concerns us now is chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is giving instruction concerning the uh, dealing with the um, uh, the prayer in the local church and the ministry of prayer in the local church and how people were to pray and what they were to pray for. And this is a salvific passage. There is much here that pertains to the issue of salvation, as you're going to see as we read through this. So, beginning at verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Now there are two issues that come up in that text, and I'm not going to deal with each of these two issues comprehensively, though I am going to do it quickly because I don't want to get sidetracked off of the main focus, which is what does it mean to have a mediator and what is a mediator? That's mentioned in verse 5. The two issues, first in verse 4, what does it mean that God desires the salvation of all men? In what way does God desire the salvation of all men? And if God desires the salvation of all men, why are not all men saved? The second theological issue is brought up in verse 6, that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. In what sense did Christ give himself as a ransom for all? And if Christ ransomed all men, then why are not all men saved? Those are the two theological issues, and we'll kind of deal with those in due course. But let's jump in at verse 1, and uh, we'll kind of build up to verse 5 and deal with these as we get to them. Verse 1, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Now, verse 1 is filled with a lot of language that describes different elements of prayer, uh, different elements of worship and the service. And Paul is saying that petitions and thanksgivings and requests and prayers and, and all of these things ought to be, intercession ought to be given on behalf of all men. Now, what does Paul mean by all men? Does he mean that we are supposed to specifically pray for each and every individual on the face of the planet by name, specifically and intentionally? Is that what he is saying? I don't think that that is what he is saying. Though Paul says all men, he does not mean, I do not believe, all men without exception. He means all men without distinction. In other words, all kinds of men. Because specifically, the Apostle Paul narrows his focus down to kings and to all who are in authority. In other words, it is not just, we're not just to pray for ourselves, those within our four walls, our church body, and a few people loosely attached to this fellowship. Our prayer is to have an all-encompassing scope to it so that we are willing and able and ready to pray for all men, all kinds of men. And not necessarily that we are to list all seven billion people on the face of the planet, and those that is to be whom we are to pray for. But we are to pray, pray not for all men without exception, but all men without any kind of distinction. Specifically, Paul narrows down the all men to kings and all who are in authority. Now that even seems, that even seems a bit daunting. All who are in authority? The manager of Walmart is in authority. 
The department heads at Walmart are in authority. Are we supposed to pray for the department heads at Walmart and the managers at Walmart and then go across the street to Home Depot and pray for them and all who are in authority? That's still a daunting task, really. It is not necessarily all who are in authority, as Paul means, but specifically, verse 2, those who wield some sort of power or influence that have a bearing on us living peaceful and tranquil lives. That is specifically who we are supposed to pray for. Yes, it's, it's all kinds of men. It, it is all who are in authority, for instance, kings, but specifically those who have some bearing on us living a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. That is who we have to pray for. Are you worried about being persecuted? Are you worried about your rights being taken away? Are you worried about things getting difficult in the, in the years to come? Oh, no, not anymore because Trump become president. Right? No, whatever. If you are worried about, if you are worried about these things, if you want to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness, there's somebody that you should be praying for. It's not the manager at Walmart. They have no bearing on that whatsoever. Yes, they're in a position of authority. Yes, they are a person. But specifically in this context, as a church, we ought to be praying for those who wield some influence, some power in a position of authority that have a bearing on whether or not we are able to lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness. That is specifically who we ought to pray for. So the all is not all-encompassing of every single individual. Though, look, if you want to have a prayer ministry and pray for every person on the face of the planet, more power to you. But that is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about specifically praying for those who have been given a position of authority over us. But then that would raise the question, if I pray for the president-elect, and I pray for the president, and I pray for the Supreme Court justices, and I pray for my senators and my my legislators and my county commissioners and my sheriffs and deputies, etc. These are people who have a bearing on that. Those are people in positions of authority that affect whether or not we can lead peaceful and godly lives. If I pray for them, what am I supposed to pray for them? I'm supposed to pray for them their salvation. Not for the sheriff's ants ingrown toenail. That's not what we're supposed to pray for. We're supposed to specifically pray for their salvation. This context is salvific. Which is why in verse 4, Paul talks about God desiring all men to be saved. It is why in verse 5, Paul talks about Christ being the only mediator between God and men. He is the man Christ Jesus. And it is why in verse 6, Paul talks about the ransom that was paid to redeem us from the marketplace of sin. This is salvific in nature. So we are to pray for them, but we are to pray specifically for their salvation. We can pray for them to have wisdom, etc. That's fine. But we need to pray for their salvation, for their redemption. That they may be saved, and if they are saved and those who wield that type of authority over us are saved, we will be able to live tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness. We will have that blessing because they are saved. But what, you ask, if it is not God's will to save the president-elect, or the president, or our congressman, or the Supreme Court justices, might I be found praying against God's will if they are not among the elect, if they are not chosen? If God has, has not determined to save them, if he, it is not, might it be against God's will or His desire? And if I pray for their salvation, might I be found to be praying against what God actually desires? If God desires to judge that individual, might I be praying contrary to the will and desire of God? No, Paul says in verse 3, these types of prayers are good and acceptable to God our Savior. Why? We are to pray for them because God desires all men to be saved. It is God's desire that all men be saved. And so we can pray in keeping with the will and the desire of God, knowing that God desires their salvation and me praying for their salvation is in fact me praying according to what God desires. You follow me so far? But then this raises the issue. 
if God desires the salvation of all men, why are not all saved? And you say, free will of man. Well, not quite. Hold on. Let's think through this a little bit more carefully. We need to avoid two ditches. One is the ditch of saying, God has no other desire for the non-elect, for those who will not be saved, the impenitent sinners. He has no desire for them except their judgment and their eternal damnation. That's the only thing God desires concerning those whom He has not chosen. That's one ditch. The other ditch is to say that since God desires the salvation of all men, all will be saved. That's universalism and the teaching that there is no hell and that in the end love wins and that everybody will come to faith eventually and everybody will be saved whether they know it or not, that everybody will be in heaven. Hitler, Castro, Pol Pot, all of them, they'll all be in heaven with us. That's universalism. Now, both of those ditches both make the same error, though in a different way. They both make a fundamental assumption that is wrong, and it is the same assumption. And the assumption that both of those ditches make is the assumption that if God desires something, it must come to pass. So those who believe that God desires nothing for the unsaved except for their damnation, they are, they are in essence assuming that if God desired their salvation, they in fact would be saved. But since they are not saved, God therefore must not desire their salvation, since everything that God desires in any sense at all, He fulfills. The other camp makes the exact same error, the exact same wrong assumption. They say that since God does desire that all men will be saved, and God gets everything He desires, all men will be saved. Now those two ditches are both assuming the same thing, and that is that if God desires it, it must certainly come to pass. And so that leads off into two completely different and opposing errors. But at this point, we must make a distinction between what God desires and what God decrees. I do affirm that God desires the salvation of all men, but God has not decreed to save all men. God has decreed something that He does not necessarily desire, and that is that He allows some men to perish into eternal flames. Now, does God desire to judge the wicked? He does. Not because he likes to inflict pain on his creatures, but because he likes to vindicate his righteousness and his holiness and see that justice is done. God desires that justice be done, just like you and I desire that justice be done. We don't like it when criminals go free. God does not desire that justice be be afforded. He desires that justice be satisfied. That means the damnation of the impenitent wicked. So God does have a desire that all men be saved, but that desire is not a desire that God, by the secret counsels of His will, has seen fit to make sure happens and that all men are actually saved. That is why God can desire the salvation of all men and at the same time allow many to perish. Because God has a desire, an intention, that is higher than than His other desire. Namely, the desire to demonstrate His righteousness and to punish sinners. You and I understand what this means, to have a desire but to not, but to do other things that don't fulfill that desire. I have a desire to to sit around all day and eat hot wings and watch football and play video games. That's my desire. But I don't do that. I get up and I take a shower and I brush my teeth and I go to work. And I do my job. Why? Because I have other desires, other priorities that take place, that, that take precedence over what it is that I might desire. Now, the analogy breaks down because my desire in that case is sinful and wrong and self-centered, and God never has any sinful or wrong or self-centered desires. But God does have desires that are pure and holy, which desires He does not see fit to make sure are accomplished. Does that make sense? So that is how God can desire the salvation of all men without actually saving all men, or without moving to save or ensuring the salvation of all men. And since we're dealing now with these two issues that come up in the text, let's skip down to verse 6. What does it mean that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all? 
Because those who are universalists, who are saying all men will be saved, say that if Christ gave himself as a ransom, a sin payment for all men, then all men's sins have been atoned for and paid. And therefore, the divine justice has no claim upon those whose sins have actually been completely paid for and atoned for. So what does Paul mean when he says that God, that Christ offered a ransom for all? Does he mean, again, all men without exception, that every single person on the face of the planet has had their sins completely paid for? If that is the case, then they have been, God cannot justly send them to hell. He cannot do that because divine justice would have no claim upon that individual if their sins have been completely atoned for. So in what sense then did Christ make a ransom payment for all men? Is it all men without exception or is it all kinds of men, like in verse 1, all men without any kind of distinction as to whether they're just Jews or just Gentiles or just these types of people? I believe that it is all men without distinction. And what Paul is describing here, listen, is not the intention of the atonement or the scope of the atonement, but the sufficiency of what Christ has done on the cross. It is the sufficiency of it. In other words, if God were to add another billion people to the scope of the elect and include another billion people to save, Christ would not have had to suffer one more moment of wrath. He would have not had to do anything else because the atonement that he has provided is infinitely valuable. Infinitely valuable. It is an infinite righteousness, able to provide righteousness for you and for me and for the person behind you and in front of you and on the other side of the globe. It is an infinite sacrifice of infinite value, uh, providing an infinite righteousness to all who will believe. But in terms of those who are impenitent and remain hardened in their sin and will not repent, that is not an atonement that is imputed to their, their, their sin. It is imputed at the moment of faith. And those who will not have faith in Jesus Christ or place their faith in Jesus Christ have no payment for their sin because the righteousness of Christ is not imputed to them. It is imputed to us on the basis of faith. So that describes the sufficiency of the atonement. And when we say that the merits of Christ's work are not imputed or counted to the case of, to the account of those who will not believe, we are saying nothing about the value of the atonement. It is infinite in its value. It is infinite in its ability to save, and it is perfect. And by the way, if God had determined to save one individual out of all of the mass of humanity, to populate heaven with one redeemed saint, Christ would not have had to suffer any less than he suffered to save one, just as he would not have had to suffer any more to save a billion more than will actually be saved. Because it was a perfect, perfect atonement. And it provides an infinite righteousness. So what Paul is describing here is the sufficiency, the value of the atonement, and I would say the singularity of the atonement. In other words, this is the, this is the payment that was made available to all men. Anybody and all who will be saved must come through this mediator and this mediator alone. That is what he means in verse five when he says Christ is the mediator and he is the one mediator. So he is the one who has provided one sacrifice There is one path, there is one mediator, there is one pathway to God, and it is through Jesus Christ, because He is the one who has provided that one ransom, one and only one ransom that is made available to all men. And this is the singularity of what Christ has done. There's not one path for Hindus and another for Sikhs, and one for Muslims, and one for Roman Catholics, and one for Buddhists, and one for New Agers, and one for Christians. There's not multiple paths to God, all of which are equally valuable and will equally get you there. There is one path, because there has been one ransom that has been provided, made available to all men, and if any out of the all men will come, they must come through that one mediator. So that is what he's describing, the sufficiency of the atonement and the singularity of the atonement, not the scope of the atonement. A lot of S words. Now that brings us to the mediator. Now that was the introduction. You say, Osman, 
You are three quarters of the way into this train wreck and you are just now getting to the outline. I am. But because we have laid all of this foundation, now we can go through the three points of the outline in a very quick fashion because I've actually kind of given you most already of, this, of the whole sermon. That's good news. Verse 5. Verse 5 is, describes the mediator. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So here are the three questions that we want to answer. What is a mediator? What qualifies Christ to be our mediator? And what does he mediate? What is a mediator? What qualifies Jesus Christ to be that mediator? And what does he mediate? And, and, and in this, we'll understand what a mediator is. There is one God, and so there is one mediator. If there were multiple gods, then there might be multiple mediators. But there's only one God, and therefore there is only one mediator. If there were a bunch of gods out there, then we might be able to go to each one of those gods in a different path, and we might be able to find our way to a different god, each of us choosing uh, one of, of many different possible paths. But because there is one God, and that is the uniform testimony of Scripture, because there is one God, there can only be one mediator between God and man, and he is the man Christ Jesus. Now, what is a mediator? The Greek word for mediator is mesetes, and it refers to an arbiter or a reconciler. It, it talks about, a, it refers to a go-between, somebody who stands between two opposing parties who are in opposition to one another. And this person stands in the middle to broker peace between these two parties. That's what a mediator is. It is a go-between. It was used of somebody who would, uh, somebody who would ratify a covenant between two opposing parties, who would sort of lay his hand on one camp and lay his hand on the other camp and try to bring about reconciliation and be a bridge between these two opposing parties. That is what a mediator is. Now that obviously demonstrates that we need a mediator and this is why God has provided a mediator for us. Why do we need a mediator? It's because God is the offending party, offended party, and we are the offending party. We are the ones who have violated His law. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have minds and hearts and wills and intentions that are set in hostility and animosity against God. He is our avowed enemy. We are rebels living underneath of His kingdom. We have violated His law. We deserve His wrath. He is angry with us. We deserve the torments of hell, conscious and eternal, forever and ever, for even one sin that we have committed. And yet we have stacked up a rap sheet of sin that is unbelievable and enormous. And He is the holy and transcendent and righteous one who must see that justice is done and that righteousness is fulfilled and that His wrath against that sin is satisfied. Now who will stand between the offending, the offender, and the offended party, and bring about and broker this peace. There must be a mediator between these two camps, and animal sacrifices cannot do that. Animal sacrifices cannot bridge that gap. They, can't, they cannot reach out and grab a hold of God and grab a hold of men and bring us together and reconcile uh, sinners to a righteous God. Animal sacrifices cannot do that. And Job expressed this desire and need for a mediator in Job chapter 9, verse 33, when he said there is no umpire, and describing the, the transcendence of God, how God was distant away, and he wanted to plead his case to God and hear God speak to him. Job said there is no umpire between the two of us, that he may lay a hand upon both of us. And this is what Job recognized his need was. God is high and transcendent. He is holy. And, and, and I can try and talk to him, but he is distant from me. And, and yet here I am down here. I am a worm. Job said, I need somebody to stand between the two of us and put his hand upon me and his hand upon God and broker a peace between us. Because that's what I don't have. And that describes what we need and what we have as a mediator. Now, if you've ever been involved in any kind of court mediation, you know what this looks like. Uh, about a year ago, I was involved in a court-ordered mediation. Now, calm down. It wasn't on behalf of the church. It wasn't on behalf of me. It was on behalf of a civic institution that I'm part of. I'm a, I'm a board member there. And uh, they were being sued. 
And so the court ordered that uh, there be mediation. So myself and another board member, we went down to Coeur d'Alene, and it was kind of a, it was a new experience for me. <coughs> I've never done anything like this before. But uh, we showed up at the mediator's office at different times. We, I never even saw the other party. And they showed up at one time, we showed up at another time, we went into separate rooms. We never saw each other in the course of the whole mediation. And it took about seven years, or seven hours. felt like seven years. It felt like the whole Gospel of John is what it felt like. Uh, it took about seven hours for this to take place. But he would go from, from their room into our room, and he would sit down at a table and have a conversation with us. He would hear our case, seek to understand it, try and make sure that he understood exactly what it is that we were after, what our interests were. And then he would go into the other room and sit down and presumably do the same thing with them. And then he would come back to our room, and this went back and forth, back and forth over the course of the whole day. That is what a mediator does. There's two opposing parties who really do not see each other, and the mediator brokers peace between the two of them. This is what Christ has done. No one can come to the Father except through Him. He is the one who has laid His hand upon the Father, and He has laid upon His hand upon a fallen humanity, and He has brought about reconciliation for His people before the Father. He's the perfect mediator. That is what we needed, and that is exactly what Christ has done. That is why He said, I am the, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one can come to the Father except through Me. One mediator. One means by which we approach the Father. And Christ is that mediator who stands with his hand between the two of us. And notice the exclusivity of that. There's only one. Why can there be only one? Is it because, it, this doesn't sound very very nice in a postmodern world where people are all into tolerance and, and all of that other stuff and they don't, they don't like to hear about how Christianity is the only way and there's only one mediator and there's only one path and everybody else is wrong and there's only one true religion. That seems very offensive in our age, doesn't it? But it's the gospel truth. There is one God. And so there can only be one mediator. And this is the exclusivity of it. It is exclusive because only one person has done the work of reconciling men to God. That is why it is exclusive. Not because as Christians we like to put our nose in the air and say, well, we have it and you don't and we're arrogant and, and you can't have this. That, that is not the idea behind the exclusive offer or claims of the gospel. It is because of the nature of this hostility that exists between God and man. Only one person has stood in the gap. And done the work necessary to reconcile men to God. And therefore, there is one mediator. If other men had done this, there would be more than one mediator. But there is not more than one mediator because nobody else has been able to reconcile men to God. Christ and Christ alone has done this. So what is a mediator? A mediator is one who stands between two opposing parties and brokers peace. That is what a mediator does. And so Paul says there is one God, and therefore there is one mediator between God and man. Now that's the first question. What is a mediator? The second question, what qualifies Christ to be our mediator? It is because He is the man, Christ Jesus. That's the qualification. He is the God-man. That's, that's the qualification. And by the way, the, the name Christ is not His last name. Like, I'm Jim Osmond. He's Jesus Christ. It's not a last name. Like, my last name is Osmond. His last name is Christ. Christ is a title. It means Messiah. It's the New Testament equivalent for the Old Testament word Messiah. So he is the man, Messiah, Jesus. That's what it means. He is the man who is the Messiah, Jesus. Now, Paul's not denying the deity of Christ in this context, but he is really answering the question, what is it that qualifies Christ to be that one mediator? How, how can I have confidence and trust in Him? It is because He is a man. That is, He is fully human. He is fully divine, yes, but He is also fully human. And so He is able to do what bulls and goats and all of the sacrifices and blood offerings of the Old Testament could never do. He could stand in my stead and represent me. Because He was born as a man and He lived a perfect life as a man and He obeyed the law as a man and He suffered as a man and He died as a man and He rose again from the dead as a man. Everything that He did, He did and He is able to represent me in that activity because He is also a man. 
No mere man would be able to provide me with the righteousness that God demands. Because I needed somebody, <coughs> I needed somebody to provide me with the righteousness which is perfect and infinite, the righteousness that belongs to God Himself. No mere man could do that. Nobody in this building could stand in my stead and bear my wrath and provide me with that righteousness because nobody here is righteous enough to provide me with the righteousness that I need. So no mere man could give me what I need. But God and God alone could not provide that apart from becoming a man. It required somebody who was both man and God so that he could lay his hand upon God and he could lay his hand upon us. He could stand and represent me to God and he could stand and represent God to us and be the perfect mediator. That is what qualifies him to be that mediator. He and he alone is the God-man. Able to provide righteousness because he is perfect and infinite. And because he is God, he has infinite righteousness. And because he is a man, he stood in my stead and he could represent me and do and act on my behalf so that his death becomes my death, his resurrection becomes my resurrection. His perfect life is credited to me because he was actually fully a man. That is what qualifies him to be our mediator. Now the third question, not what is a mediator and how is Christ qualified to be a mediator, but what does he mediate? He is the man Christ Jesus. What does he mediate? This is a big question and it's a big answer. The big answer is this, everything. Everything. Everything pertaining to my approach to God, my worship, my service, my sacrifice, my acts of obedience, my giving, my thanksgiving, uh, my praise, uh, my singing, everything that relates to me approaching God and having a relationship with God, Christ is a mediator for that. At no point and for nothing in my Christian life do I step out of that mediated role and say, okay, Lord, I'm approaching you now on my own merits and on, on my own stead. can never do that. Everything that I offer and that you offer to God, everything that pertains to our relationship upward to the Lord is mediated through one panel, uh, one pathway, and that's Jesus Christ. Likewise, everything that God does pertaining to and directed toward His people down here comes to us through the Jesus Christ. At no point does God work with us or bless us or sanctify us through any other means than through Jesus Christ. So when we come to God, we come to Him through Jesus Christ. We come to Him in Christ's merits because He is our high priest and He has provided this path in the new covenant and He has opened up the throne room of God. We can approach the Father not in our own merits and not in our own stead, but in the merits and the stead of Jesus Christ who is our mediator. And everything that God does for us, His people, His, His bride, the church, everything, all the blessings and the grace and the mercies and the goodnesses that He showers upon us all come to us through the person of Jesus Christ. There is one channel of communication between us and God, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And so he mediates everything. And this is where we would break down the idea of mediation, which is the overarching idea here, into the different ways that Christ mediates that. What does he mediate? Well, he mediates everything. As prophet, priest, and king. And so as a prophet, he mediates the word of God to us. And we hear God speak through the person of Christ and in the person of Christ. The book of Hebrews says in these last times, God has spoken to us through his son. As the ultimate source, the ultimate venue of God's revelation of Himself in Christ is all of the fullness of all of Scripture and all of the revelation of God in the person of His Son. That is how God has spoken to us. So as prophet, He mediates God's Word to us. As priest, He represents us to God. That's going the opposite direction. As prophet, He mediates God's Word to us. As priest, He has provided a sacrifice on our behalf. He has stood in our stead. He has provided that pathway and blood, and He has done all of this 
as our representative before the Father, and it satisfied the Father. And so everything that Christ did here as our high priest is intended to represent us to God. That's going the other way. As a king, he represents the rule of God over his people, and he mediates the kingship. So as prophet, he mediates the word of God. As priest, he mediates us before God in a sacrifice. And as king, he mediates the rule of God over his people. Those are all three mediatorial offices of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when I say he mediates everything... We sum up everything, but when we divide it down, we divide it into those three main heads. Prophet, priest, and king. Does that make sense? That is who Christ is, and that is what Christ has done. He's the perfect mediator. And there's only one mediator. Now before us today is the Lord's Supper, communion. And we are recognizing, when we celebrate communion... We are acknowledging and recognizing that when we come to God, we come to Him through that sacrifice that has been offered on our behalf on the cross. That the body was broken and the blood was shed to provide an atonement, one ransom, one payment for sin. That has been mediated for us. He has provided that payment, that ransom for sin, so that we might approach God. So communion really is a, (coughs) pardon me, communion really is a recognition of, of that sacrifice and a remembrance of that sacrifice, which has his act as his, as our high priest mediating before us, before God. When we partake of communion, we don't want to do it in an, in an unworthy manner. That doesn't mean that we have to be perfect to partake of communion. Uh, listen, there's nobody in this room that has ever lived a single day well enough to earn the merit to deserve partaking of communion. Never. I've never lived one day of my life in a manner that makes me worthy of partaking of communion. But in partaking of communion, I am recognizing that there is one who lived every day of his life perfectly, and he did it on my behalf. So that now I can come to God, not as just a sinner who has been saved by grace and had my sins forgiven, but as one who has been given the righteousness of Christ himself. If you are not a believer here today and you have never repented of your sin and trusted Christ for salvation and been born again, do not partake of communion. This isn't for you. This is for those who have availed themselves of that run ransom made for all. And you have come to that ransom for that payment, confessed your sin, repented of it, and believed upon Jesus Christ. So if you're not a believer, don't partake of communion. You eat and drink judgment to yourself. It's a serious thing. For those of us who are believers... This is the recognition and acknowledgement that this is the path by which, this represents the path by which we come and commune before God. There's nothing salvific about the elements, but it does represent, it symbolizes that which is paid to bring us to God through the death of His Son. So we'll pray together, we'll bow our heads, pray quietly for a moment as we confess our sin, and then we'll partake together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.